week we started a study in Revelation, and my goal this week is to kind of complete this this brief overview of the whole book. And uh, the point of last week and this week is not so that you totally understand every detail in the book of Revelation. The point of last week and this week is just to give you an overview. And my desire is this. I've had several people come up to me last week and this week who have said, I have never opened the book of Revelation to read for myself because I've always been so scared of it. Um, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I, I read it and, it and it terrifies me and a lot of it I don't understand. Well, the, what I'm trying to do is, is get it to a point where you can understand the book. You can open it and read it for yourself. And for, in fact, I encourage you, would you try this week to read through the book of Revelation? I mean, after this week's message, you should have a pretty good outline of the whole book so you can read it for yourself and understand it. But would you do that? If you just read three chapters a day, by the time you got here next week, you will have read through the book of Revelation. Okay, just just three chapters a day. In fact, I timed myself last night. I read through three chapters, and I read slowly, and, uh, and, and it took me four minutes and 50 seconds. Okay, so in less than five minutes, and I understand I'm Asian and everything, but still, for, I think most people can read it, you know, in a pretty short period of time. But so we're not asking for all, you know, like an hour a day, you know, study this book. I'm saying five minutes, you know, can you spend five minutes and just just read three chapters a day? Because I tell you, it's one thing to hear it from me, but it's, it's a complete different thing when you read it yourself. And when no one else is around, you just take five minutes and read the Bible for yourself. I tell you, it is so much more powerful. And so I want to give you an overview so that you can understand. And so when you read it yourself, it's very meaningful to you. Now, last week, we studied the first 11 chapters of of Revelation. And this week, we want to read uh, chapters 12 all the way to the end. Um, But let me give you an overview again. Okay, let me give you an overview of the first 11 chapters real quickly. Chapter 1 is, remember, Jesus is speaking to John, and he tells John, write down what you hear. And so John begins to write it down. And then in chapters 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, is uh, those are seven letters, remember, to the seven churches that were in existence at that time. And each one of those letters was a message that God had to send to each of those churches. Then we get to chapter 4. Remember, chapter 4 is when John gets to see what heaven is like. And he gets to see God on his throne. John sees God on his throne and everyone is worshiping him there in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, John notices, hey, God has a scroll in his hand, a scroll with seven seals. And everyone's saying, who gets to open it? And then Jesus comes and Jesus gets to open the scroll. And then in chapter 6, he begins to unwind the scroll, you know, and he opens up to the first seal and you see a white horse and the white horse represents peace showing that in the beginning of the end times, there is going to be a time of peace. Remember, we went back to Daniel 9 and showed that it looks like three and a half years of peace led by this Antichrist. And then you you open up the seal a little bit more, the second seal, and he saw a red horse. The red horse symbolizes war, saying that someone's going to come in in the middle of that time, and he's going to take the peace from the earth, and there's going to be all sorts of war. He unrolls it a little bit more. And then the third seal was a black horse. And... uh, and I just make sure a black horse and uh, the black horse, the guy on it was holding a pair of scales. Remember showing that there was going to be famine, showing that you could have a day's wages and it still wouldn't be enough to feed you. Um, then there is a fourth seal. He opens that up and there is a pale horse and, uh, and the rider's name was death. 
And it showed that through all the devastation so far, a fourth of the inhabitants of the earth would be killed. He opens up the fifth seal. And on the fifth seal, it's a glimpse of heaven again. And this time there are, there are martyrs, people who die during the tribulation. Because during that world ruler's rule, he makes it illegal for people to follow Jesus Christ. And so he, he kills them. And so the fifth seal is this picture of these martyred saints who are crying out to God, saying, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? Jesus unrolls the scroll a little bit more in, chapter, in, verse, uh, in the sixth seal. You begin to see it a little bit more where uh, there's a great earthquake and the, the moon turns blood red. And then all the stars from the sky start falling or meteors or something begin to hit the earth. And it's, and it's pretty chaotic. And uh, so then you have the end of chapter 6. You go to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is where they talked about the 144,000, the Jewish believers who are going to be sealed somehow so that they are protected during this time of wrath. Uh, and then in chapter 8 is when Jesus opens the final seal, the seventh seal, and it says that there's silence in heaven because it's just so awesome what they're about to see. And they see these seven angels with trumpets. And after each angel blows his trumpet, there comes some wrath. The first angel uh, blows his trumpet there in chapter 8, and it says that uh, he sees this, this mixture of hail and blood and fire that starts falling onto the earth, and it burns up a third of the earth. The second angel blows his trumpet, and he sees this big mountain, just a blaze of fire hitting the ocean, and it says it destroys a third of the seas. The third angel blows his trumpet, and he sees this blazing star come down to the earth, and it hits the water, the, the rivers, the springs, and it uh, contaminates a third of the waters. And then the fourth angel blows his trumpet, and something else happens. A fourth angel blows his trumpet and a, a third of the sun goes black, a third of the moon goes dark, a third of the stars go black, a third of the day is without light, a third of the night is just pitch black. Um, and, then, and then the fifth angel in, uh, in chapter 9, the fifth angel uh, blows his trumpet and then a star or Satan comes down and he unlocks the pit of hell, remember that? And he allows these demons to come out of the... Out, out of hell, and uh, they're like locust-type beings with this scorpion type of sting where they're going around stinging everyone, everyone that isn't sealed with the seal of God, and uh, they're stinging them, and it's a torturous sting that doesn't kill them, but it tortures them for five months. And then uh, the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and that's when, remember the river Euphrates, those angels that were there, released the army of 200 million. And the 200 million mounted troops go out, and they slaughter a third of the world and then uh and then chapter 10 chapter 10 is when remember john hears these loud thunderous voices speaking and he begins to write it down and god says don't write that down i don't want it written and it's a mystery we don't know what that's about that's when the angel with the little scroll is holding it and and john goes hey can i have that scroll and the angel says sure but you got to eat it he eats it uh, it's sweet in his mouth, it's bitter in his stomach, showing that, gosh, there's a sweetness about this end times, it's great, but it also, there's this bitter feeling in my stomach and this bitter taste of it all when I see the devastation of God poured out upon mankind. And then, uh, then chapter 11, where we left off last week, chapter 11 was the two witnesses. Remember we talked about how there are two witnesses on the earth that God uses to proclaim his gospel, and yet... Uh, 
when people attack these two witnesses, they breathe fire out of their mouths and they show all sorts of signs. They have all sorts of power to release plagues upon people. The people finally kill these two witnesses and everyone rejoices. Everyone sees it and they're sending presents to everyone. And then these two witnesses rise from the dead and everyone is terrified and uh, give their presents back. Um, And, and, you know, one thing I want to say about that, those two witnesses, I said last week, I think I said last week that those two witnesses are during the first three and a half years of this seven-year tribulation period. I don't believe that anymore, okay? I believe they're in the second half. The more I studied this week, and you guys, this happens in the book of Revelation. I've gone back and forth on some things, uh, but the more I study, I'm pretty convinced these two witnesses during the second half of the tribulation um, I may change before the series is over, but you've got to understand something, though. It brings up a good point. As we study the book of Revelation, there are things that are pretty clear. There are other things that we're not sure about. And I'll let you know those things. You know, we're not totally sure about this. And, and no one knows for certain where these two witnesses live. Is it during the first three and a half or the second three and a half? I think it's the second three and a half. But bottom line, it doesn't matter that much. And I don't want us to get into a lot of debates during this time of revelation. I want to focus on the things that we do know and most scholars do agree upon. Because what happens so often with the book of Revelation is we get to these details and everyone starts arguing about, no, I think it's this, I think it's this, and we miss the big picture. Man, everyone knows God's going to win at the end. Everyone knows there's going to be just utter devastation And that's what we've got to focus on. Everyone knows in the end that we reign with God forever. And that these are the main points of of the book. And so understand, there'll be different things as to where the rapture is, whether there's a millennial kingdom, you know, when the witnesses are there. I'm not saying it's not important, um, but it's not the most important thing in the book. So I don't want to focus too much on that. So with that, we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is where we pick up the narrative. Chapter 12, um, this, is a, this is a picture of Satan. You know, what is Satan doing during this time? Chapters 12 and 13 kind of show the devil and uh, his role in history and his role in the tribulation period. To understand chapter 12, you, know, you have to know that there are three main characters. There is the woman, there is the child, and there is the dragon. Okay? The woman represents the nation of Israel. The child represents Jesus Christ, and the dragon represents Satan. Okay, and you'll see that. It's clarified as you read the narrative. But when you read it on your own, just so you know, when you read about the woman, the child, and the, and the dragon, that's who they are. Uh, look at chapter 5. I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 12. It says, She gave birth to a son. She, who is she? Israel. Gave birth to a son. Who is the son? Jesus. A male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Okay, so that is Jesus Christ, uh, who was born out of the nation Israel. Go to verse 6. It says, The woman, Israel, fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. What is 1,260 days? Three and a half years, exactly. So somehow Israel, remember the 144,000 that are sealed, they're protected by God? Part of their protection is they're taken to this place in the desert or someplace where they're hidden so they don't experience a lot of this wrath 
that the rest of the world is, is facing. They are hidden there. They're protected for 1,260 days. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Okay, so then it shows this war. Not God himself fighting Satan, but the the high archangel Michael is fighting against Satan. And you see Satan losing and being thrown down to the earth along with the angels that were following Satan. And that's where we go to chapter 13. Satan is now hurled onto the earth. In chapter 13, we see a little bit of what he does during the tribulation period. Chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Okay, now we, we're in chapter 13, verse 1, and, and the dragon or Satan, he, you know, John sees Satan standing on the seashore, and uh, this beast comes out of the ocean. Now, this beast is who we have termed the Antichrist. Or this is that ruler that first brings peace to the earth from the first seal. It's referring to this one world ruler. Okay, there's going to come a day when we're going to work toward a one world government. We're already working toward it. I mean, we're already, you know, we've been pursuing that for a while as, as, a, as a people. This is one world government. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to be under the reign of this guy, the Antichrist, or what he's referred to is the beast here. Okay, look at verse 5. This beast, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given authority to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So here's a guy who is obviously against God and yet he becomes the world ruler and all the nations begin to follow him. But not only they begin to follow him, look at verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. So this is a different person. This is not the first beast. A second person is going to come. This is a person we call the false prophet. And look at verse 12. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Okay. So it's not enough that this guy is ruling the world. The second guy comes along and tells people you need to worship the, this ruler. Okay, You need to worship this man. Okay, Now, how do you get people to worship someone? I mean, you can't really get people to worship a human being, can you? Well, this is how he does it. Look at verse 14. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast... He deceived the nations of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, great and small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Okay, you guys have probably heard of the 666 before, but let's, let's go back. Okay, how does this second person get everyone to worship the first guy? He does miraculous signs. Okay, in fact, it says that he, he creates like a statue or some sort of image of the first guy. You know, he just makes an, a, a statue of the first ruler. And what he does is he empowers the statue to begin to speak. You know, imagine if some guy comes along and he is able to create these statues and then makes these statues speak. Then he begins to call, you know, like fire from heaven, all these different types of signs. You go, okay, this is not a normal human being, and he is telling me to worship this guy. I'll worship him. You see how the whole world begins to, because that could happen. If someone that powerful was here on the earth, something we've never seen before, people would worship him. Not only that, but the beast says, look, you have to take my mark upon you. And if you don't take my mark, I'm not going to allow you to buy or sell. Remember, it's a one world economy now. It's under one ruler. And we're very close to this. I mean, we've been moving toward this cashless society. I mean, we've been moving toward that in our lifetimes. It's amazing to see the development already. I mean, how many people really use cash anymore? You know, and it's, we use these credit cards, and when they swipe a credit card, they know everything about you. But what happens is we lose these credit cards, and they get lost. Other people use them. And so I believe there's going to come a day when those credit cards are obsolete too, and you receive a mark instead. I think it's similar. I'm not prophesying anything here, but I'm just saying that, you know, right now, we, they already do it to dogs. They put a little chip, you know, behind their neck so they can scan it, and they know the dog's name, where he lives, and his favorite food. You, you already got that. Um, so to, to, to transfer it to humans, and, and the whole idea of putting this mark on the hand or the forehead, in cold climates, those are the two parts of the body that are most readily exposed, you know, and, and in a lot of places, you know, where it's freezing, it's like, all right, go scan me. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's right there. Um, so that's, that's the whole idea of this mark, and it said that, you know what, you can't buy or sell. So you want to feed your family, go to the market and buy something? If you don't have the mark of the beast, sorry, you can't do it. We don't accept cash. We don't accept credit cards. You know, we're in this cashless society now. So that's what it appears that we are heading toward. And we're appearing like we're heading toward this one world government. It appears like we're heading toward a one world religion. As so many religions of the world are coming together and say, you know what? We all believe in the same God, right? And so that's what this false prophet is, getting everyone to worship the same God that we all believe. Then he transferred that worship to this beast. So you understand how we're heading towards that right now? That is what Satan is trying to do, Revelation 13. Now you go to chapter 14. And it says, Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, who's the lamb? Jesus. He says, this is the very end now. Okay, he's going towards the very end of time. It is said that Jesus Christ will come back, and he will stand on Mount Zion. This is a literal place right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, I was there, and you can look outside the, the, the east gate there in Jerusalem, and you see this mountain range, and you just go, okay, that's it. You know, God's going to return. Jesus Christ is going to return. And here it says that 144,000 are with him. He's going to stand on this mountain. There's going to be this great earthquake. There's going to be this great slaughter. And that's what it's describing in chapter 14, verse 1. Then in verse 6, it says this, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. 
He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Okay, so the first angel says, You know what? Worship the true God. The second angel says, You know, Babylon the great has fallen. Babylon the great is just another name for this end-time kingdom that the Antichrist leads. This one-world government, this one-world uh, religion is referred to as Babylon the Great. And, he, and the second angel is saying, you know what? His time of reign is over. The Antichrist time is over. It's God's turn. And then in verse 9, it says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image, for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Okay, because this is, uh, this is why we need to proclaim this stuff. The Bible says if you take that mark, that's automatic condemnation on you. And you'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not temporarily, not till you die. It's eternal torment for those who have taken the mark. And hey, last week I mentioned, I, I lean toward the belief that the church, all the believers will be taken out of the earth before this tribulation period. But let me say this. There are a lot of great scholars who do not believe that. It's, it's pretty split. And there are a lot of people who believe, no, the Christians do you know, exist throughout the whole tribulation period. And so I'm not going to argue that. All I'm going to say is I personally am prepared either way. One, if Christ returns today, I'm going with him. I've got a relationship with God. You know, if he takes all the believers of the earth, I'll be one of those that will be flying out of here and you won't see me anymore. I'm there. Because I've got my relationship with God is intact. If it's true that we live through the tribulation period, I'm ready for that. If an antichrist comes, if a world leader, he's not going to call himself antichrist, if this guy comes and leads the world and tells me to take a mark, I'm not taking it. He tells me to worship him, I'm not going to worship him. If it becomes this one world you know, religion where everyone says, hey, we've got to all just you know, love each other and just all love God together, I'm not going for it. There's one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that is what Scripture teaches. And I've got to stick with these convictions, and I'm going to, even if it means it costs me my life and the life of my family. Because the Bible says, if I take that mark, that's it. I'm tormented forever. And I'll go through whatever torment I need to here on this earth, if it's a year, if it's 10 years, if it's 50 years. But it's, it's all worth it, rather than taking the mark and being tormented for eternity. So that's chapter 14. Um, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, uh, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Okay, so here he says, now there are seven last plagues. Okay, at the end of chapter 14, it, it talks about the last trumpet. Um, but now it's saying, okay, remember there were seven seals, you know, that he unrolled. Then there were the seven trumpets that came out of that, the seven angels with the trumpets. Now he's saying it's the very, very, very end of it all. 
And now he sees seven angels with bowls. And each time one of them pours out a bowl, it's, it's like pouring out wrath upon the earth. And this seems to go really quick. It could be a matter of minutes that all of this happens. It could be longer. We don't know. But it seems to happen in succession very, very quickly. Um, and, and we read about this in chapter 16, starting verse 2. It says, uh, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Verse 3, The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Verse 4, The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Verse 8, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Isn't that sad? I mean, can you picture all this devastation happening to the earth, and now the sun is scorching everyone with intense heat to where you're burning up? And still these people, instead of repenting, they look at God and say, God, I can't believe you would do this to your creation. You are not allowed to do this. And God says, watch me. He goes on in in verse 10. He says, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Okay, so the sixth angel, um, his, his, his wrath is, is that, that river Euphrates. Remember when we talked about the river Euphrates and how that army of 200 million would, would come from there? Um, some would say that this is relating to that same incident. Some people believe that it's two separate incidences. We don't know. But somehow he releases uh, these armies of the world and these spirits come out. And it says that uh, these spirits go around to all of the nations and they call all of the nations to come to this one place for this great final battle, this great final war. And uh, you read about that in verse 16. It says, They gathered the kings together together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, you've heard of that term, Armageddon, the great battle of Armageddon. This is it. All the nations now are gathered in this place, and it's, an, it's a literal place. You can go there now. I went there last year. It's this, it's this valley of Megiddo. It's huge. It's massive. Napoleon said this is the greatest battleground on this earth. Okay, just this huge open plain where all these people come to for some sort of war. We don't understand the cause of it yet. Maybe they're all going against Israel. Maybe they're fighting with each other. All we know is that in the midst of this war, Jesus Christ returns and everyone begins to try to fight against Jesus Christ. And that is when God just decides, I'm, I'm killing them all. He wipes them all out. You read about that actually in the previous chapter, but it talks about this angel taking a sickle and just slashing everyone. It talks about this tremendous bloodbath where it says it goes on for 200 miles, just blood everywhere. All these people are slaughtered who try to fight against God. And that's what is described in verse 17 when it says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and now the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. 
Then there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. See, when Jesus Christ returns there on Mount Zion, it says that when he steps foot on that on that mount, the, the city's just going to divide. It's just going to crack into three parts. It's just this tremendous earthquake. It's all the armies are there, and God destroys them all, and it's just a tremendous bloodbath, and that's the way it all ends. When we go to chapter 17, um, verse 1, it says this, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. Okay, so in the midst of all this, John gets to see, he says, look at what happens to the great prostitute. Who is the great prostitute? Um, this refers to this whole Antichrist kingdom again. We, we know that because look at verse 5. It says, this title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Babylon the Great, again, that that world system, that one world government, one world religion, headed up by the Antichrist, the Bible says, look at how it falls. It is just destroyed. It calls it the great harlot or the great whore, the great prostitute. Why is that? It's because this one world religion is considered the great whore. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ. We who believe in Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation, the Bible refers to us over and over again as the bride of Christ. We are His bride. We are the one that are going to get involved in this marriage to Jesus Christ in that last day. But who is this world system and this one world religion that everyone else joins into? It's a harlot. You don't get involved with this great prostitute. And that's why we say, look, it doesn't matter how popular it gets. When everyone in the world is saying, look, one God, why are you Christians so intolerant? Why? Because we're the bride of Christ. It's not because, you know, it's just because everyone's doing it. We can't get involved in that. Okay? That is the great prostitute. That is the great harlot that will cause all sorts of people to follow it. But we are the bride of Christ, and we follow Christ because one day it says that great harlot is going to fall. That's why we don't get involved in, the, in this one world, you know, you know, government and take the mark because we know the end, it's going to fall. That's why we don't take part in this one world religion. We know it's all going to fall. The Bible has told us the end. In fact, you look at chapter 18 and and look at verse 8. Chapter 18, verse 8 says, Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine, she will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. How long is it going to take for this system that everyone thinks is invincible? Hey, we've got world peace. We've got one government. What we've always wanted. Of course you've got to join in. Of course you take the mark. We've got one religion. No more battling between all these different faiths. Everyone believes in the same God. That seems pretty powerful. And yet the Bible says in one day, it's over. God's going to destroy it. So don't fall for it. Chapter 19, after the destruction of everything, look at chapter 19, verse 1. Because after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, 
the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Okay, it says in the end, he hears heaven now cheering, roaring, screaming. It's over. Okay, this world system that sucks so many people into it, God has destroyed it and now it is his time to reign. The rest of the chapter talks about Christ. You know, it, it gives him a picture of him riding on this white horse in, in chapter 11. I might as well read it. Verse 11 of chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You have this picture of Christ returning now with these mighty armies. His robe is dipped in blood, probably from this big blood bath that he has just slaughtered so many people. And it's signifying their, their blood being splattered on his robe. Then you get to chapter 20. And this is interesting. Chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Okay, so now Christ has returned. He's here on earth, and he's got all these, you know, saints with him. And it says that Satan now is bound. An angel comes down. He binds the dragon with the saint with a chain and throws him in this pit. You remember the same pit that Satan had the key to? Now the angel has the key and he locks Satan in this pit for a thousand years. Then look at verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay, I believe this thousand years are literal. Um, there are people who believe that it isn't literal. To me, I, I just, there, there's, a, there's a, a real simple saying in, in biblical interpretation to this. If the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. In other words, if it makes sense as it's written, don't try to allegorize it away. Don't try to say, well, maybe that symbolizes this. Maybe a thousand years symbolizes this. No, if it makes sense literally, just accept it. And this, to me, makes sense literally. Christ returns, and there's actually a reign of him here on this earth for a thousand years. And John said some of those, those people who were martyred, who were beheaded, and you know, I don't know how he knew they were beheaded. Maybe they are just putting their heads back on. They come back to life. And they reign with Christ for that thousand years. Christ sets up a kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, a time when Satan is bound. Some people say we're actually in that period. I go, that's impossible because Satan is alive and well here on the earth. In fact, the Bible warns us, you know, beware of him. He's like a a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. During this period, Satan is bound. He's not doing anything. Christ rules the earth. Righteousness is reigns. It's what the earth was intended to be. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Okay, so after the thousand years, Satan gets a little breath of life here on the earth to try to deceive people again. And isn't it amazing that he is successful in deceiving people? Even after a thousand years of Christ reigning on the earth, it shows us that even with Satan not here, the depravity of man 
people still will not want to worship God. And at the end, Satan is still able to deceive people. But what happens to those people? Look at verse 10. It says, the, de- the, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the, priest and the, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Go to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, again, this is the lake of fire, Satan's doom. That's where he is thrown. That's where the beast, the the false prophet were thrown. He says, anyone whose name was not written in the book of life, he is thrown there as well. And it says that they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Some try to teach that hell just means annihilation. You go there and you just cease to exist. It's not what Scripture teaches. Um, Scripture teaches a place that is far worse than that, where people are actually tormented there day and night forever and ever. Then chapter 21, verse, verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And this is where it gets real good. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, after all of that comes the eternal state where now there's a new heaven and a new earth where we are with God forever. This is how it ends. For those who believe we're with God forever, the the others are in the, 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 the lake of fire to be tormented forever. We are with God where there's no more pain, no more weeping, no more crying. It's done. God has finished his story. He has finished with his work on this first earth. It is over with. We are with God to celebrate for all of eternity. That's how the story ends. And let me just close with chapter 22, verses 10 and 11. It says this, Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. He says, you know what? If you're doing wrong, just keep doing wrong. What does he mean by that? He means this. He says, if you can read through this whole book of Revelation, as we have done these last two weeks, if you have heard these messages through the whole book of Revelation, and after the end of all of that, you still decide, "Ah, no big deal, I'll go back to my sin. The Bible says... No hope for you. Go back to your sin. You're going to keep sinning till the end of time. It's a scary verse. See, if you can read all the warnings of Revelation and that does not literally scare the hell out of you to get your life together and start walking with God, if that does not cause you to walk with God and walk away from your sin, he says, you know what? Nothing's going to do it. But for those of us who do right and say, you know what? I recognize God's in control. I'm not going to try to fight him. I'm going to worship him. He says, you guys, keep doing it. Keep worshiping no matter how hard it gets. Do the right thing. Keep doing what is right. Keep worshiping God. And that's what we're going to do right now. The worship team is going to come up. And you guys, I I want you to picture yourself truly worshiping God right now. Because this is what those of us who believe in Jesus Christ will be doing for all of eternity. The ushers are going to come forward right now and they're going to take an offering. 
But uh, right now, would you just picture yourselves worshiping with God, with Jesus Christ? As we sing these songs, would you think about the power, the awesomeness of God as we worship Him right now? Would you think about the book of Revelation, everything we learned as we sing the songs? 